Oh God, our holy God, we thank you for your definitive acts of grace. We thank you for loving us while we were yet sinners and sending Christ to give us life. We thank you, God, for those, those moments, those seasons where you troubled our heart to the degree that we sought after you. We thank you for the liberation and freedom that came when we, when we gave our lives totally and completely over. We thank you for those moments of grace when, when we strayed from your path that you called us back to yourself. When we, when we fell in the dust, you picked us up. We thank you for your stubborn, relentless, hard-headed grace. God, we're grateful. God, I, I'm grateful for people in this room possibly today that just sort of know you by reputation, don't really have a strong sense of who you are. I'm glad they're here. I thank you for the grace of people who stumble uh, with a remote control and, and are watching now, just wondering if there's something to God and to life. I thank you for that grace. I thank you for the grace that we find when we open our hearts and we sing, when we confess our sin, when we're greeted by friends, when we, when we nervously walk into a room of strangers and find that you're present. God, I'm grateful for the grace that comes to us through your word. We thank you that you give us light to see. God, as we open the scriptures today, we pray for, a, for just another moment of grace. For your favor poured out on us. God, we pray as we do this that, that we move forward in life, that we get out of our rut, that we find joy in living and living our lives with you. God, as we open your word today, we, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask you to give us tender hearts that will receive your word as a seed planted in fertile soil. Lord, we pray that you would give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. God, we pray that you make our hands strong, that the work we do here on this earth would be as your very own. And God, we pray that a word, your word, would be found on our lips as we share the reason for the hope that is within us. God, this is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. And we pray together this morning saying, Amen. Amen. Friends, please be seated. And as you do, I invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our focal text today will begin uh, in verse 14 in just a few moments. We exist as a church family to lead all generations to love God and one another and the world in the spirit of Jesus. God has placed that as a burden on our collective lives. The ministry that we do together is to be done for the glory of God, for the good of others. And friends, it's one of the primary ways God moves us forward in life. It's one of the ways that God grows us and matures us and makes us more like Jesus. The passage of Scripture that we're about to read is a word of testimony. It's Paul talking about his own apostolate, that group of people that worked with him and traveled with him and labored side by side with him to advance the cause of Christ in the world. 
He bears witness to the, the reason why he does what he does and the way he does it. He talks about how he's moved forward by God's grace. And as we listen to his testimony today and explore it for a few moments, my prayer is that we'll all recommit ourselves as followers of Jesus to moving forward in ministry as the Spirit of Jesus urges us on. So let's hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We no longer in this way know him. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul took a pen in hand and he wrote, the love of Christ urges us on. The love of Christ moves us forward. I love the descriptive language of the King James Bible. The love of Christ constraineth us, hems us up, binds us, lashes us to the cross and the empty tomb, the love of Christ. There is great power in being constrained. Gun barrels constrain bullets. Straws constrain paper wads. Conduit constrains electrified copper wires running through the walls of this room. Constrained power moving rapidly. Pipes constrain water. Riverbanks, channels, Constrain mighty, mighty, mighty rivers. Internal combustion engines constrain power. There is great power in constraint. Vows. Vows constrain us in the most liberating and wonderful ways. Give our lives focus and power and joy and delight and love 
and grace and graciousness. This past week in this room, we celebrated Margaret Meadows' life. And in doing so, we honored Joe Meadows and his faithfulness as a husband and as a friend. Margaret, toward the end of her life for a number of years, had Alzheimer's. And Joe hung with her, and he cherished her, and he loved her. He was outside of his home very few times in four years, longer than 30 minutes, maybe a handful of times at that. And I was talking to Joe, and I said, Joe, you are an inspiration to so many young husbands. I said, Joe, you inspire me. Your faithfulness inspires me. And matter-of-factly, he just looked at me. And he said, Matt, in my life, I made three really big vows. He said, when I committed my life to Christ and I was baptized, I made a vow to God that I would follow Jesus. He said, I made a vow to my country. He said, and I made a vow to Margaret. And I said, Mr. Joe, you kept your vow. I kept my vow. The power of constraint. This past weekend, Morris Wall, our good friend Morris Wall, I, I, I put a picture on, on, on social media a couple weeks ago. I said, when I grow up, I want to be Morris Wall. I'll never be as handsome, but I'd love to be close to as good. Just love that guy. Normally, he sits right there, right about where Scott Jones is this morning. Scott, you're, you're, you're filling a good seat there. Mr. Morris fell down and cracked his ribs this weekend. And I went into his room, and he was laughing and talking. And, and I said, Mr. Morris, how you feeling? Oh, I'm doing, doing okay. He said, how are you doing? And I said, it's fine. And what, what have you been up to? And I told him about Margaret's funeral. And he said, Matt, several years ago, walking through the halls of the church, I ran into Joe, and Joe said to me, he said, Matt, my wife has just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Morris Wall said to him, he said, Matt, I told him, he said, I, I can do one thing for you. There's one thing I know that I can do for you. He says, I can pray for you and Margaret every single day. He said, I promise to you, I will do that. He looked at me and he said, Matt, I kept that promise. It wasn't braggadocia. It was sincerity. It was love. It was the power of constraint. He made a vow to a friend, and he kept it. He kept it because he was a man that had been urged on by the love of Christ, a man that had been constrained by love. And in every pew in this room, I look into the faces of people right now who are being urged on, who are being pushed forward, who are moving ahead in life because you are being constrained by the love that is in Christ Jesus. You've been constrained by the one who, while we were yet sinners, came and gave us life. The one that the Spirit rose up from the grave because death could not hold him. On every pew in this church today, there are people who are moving forward in life because you've been hemmed in. You've been hemmed in by the love of Jesus. Which means on every pew there's an example. 
There's an example of the faith being lived out in real time and in concrete situations and in a real place. How do we move forward? Paul says, as he was talking about moving forward in his own life, we're urged on. We're constrained by the love that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. He said, and so the results of that, it's really plain. He said, those of us who know Christ in this way, those of us whose lives have been touched by the grace of Jesus and that gracious moment of God crashing into the earth in that man from Nazareth, those people who know God through Christ in this way, the implications are very plain, Paul said. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for, for him, him who raises us up. You see, when we're baptized, we, we share with the world that we have identified with the journey of Jesus, that we place our faith in the work of Christ and his grace. We go down under that water to symbolize that we, we die and that his death means something for us, that he died according to scriptures for our sin to bring us to God. When we're snatched out of that water, we come up dripping and we breathe air into our lungs immediately as a symbol of new life, a symbol of life. And it's in that great drama of redemption that we proclaim the unique touch of God on our lives. And we proclaim that we worship a God that raises us up, not only in baptismal life and in an odd baptismal identity, but in our future, forever and ever, that we have life and we have life with God, not because of our own merits or our own abilities or our own beauty or our own wisdom, but because of His touch of grace. This is our faith. This is what we're about. And this is who we are. We're the people of a God that raises us up. And because of that, we're hemmed in. And we're constrained. And we're defined. And when all those things are true, we move forward. And we call that living. We call it life. We call it ministry. The love of Christ moves us. If you're taking notes, you might want to add on to that some things. The first thing being the love of Christ moves us according to a new vision of humanity or in concert with a new vision of humanity. In our salvation, God simply gives us new eyes. In verse 16, Paul talks about how we no longer view people in a merely human way. We don't think about them in, in, in simply human terms. Or in the old King James Bible, we don't know them according to the flesh. That is, we don't look at people disconnected from the divine, from God. We don't look at people as just everyday grocery-getting entities, as breathing statistics of people divorced from something deep and real and sacred. He said, we've gone on looking at people like that. In fact, most of the world looks at people like that. There are days when we look at one another like that. But he says, this is not the way forward. 
This is not the way of the ministry. This is not the way of faith. This is not the way of the gospel. This is not the way of living if you've been hemmed in by the cross and the empty tomb. He said, we have been given a new vision for humanity. Years ago, Miroslav Volf and William Ketterberg uh, edited a series of essays under the title of The Future of Hope. There is a sentence in this book uh, that was very, very scholarly, almost comedically scholarly. You know what I'm talking about? Do you remember back in those college days where you'd read a sentence and you'd go, huh? And you realize that these people were writing just for one another? Well, there's a sentence in there, and I want to read it to you. Feel free to laugh if you like. I'm sure the lovely people wrote it. It's from an essay titled Wounded Vision and the Optics of Hope. Hang with me. Here's the sentence. Are you ready? Lean forward, little children. Uncle Matt's about to read. We believe that the prevailing egological scopic regime of late modernity with its tendencies toward objectification and commodified otherness has largely blinded theories, theorists to the perception of the essential humanity of others. Do you write that down? Would you like me to read it again? Would you like me to translate it into human? This sentence translated into human is, we have the tendency to turn people into stuff. I will say that one again. We have the tendency to turn people into stuff. Disconnected from God and the sacred, we're all stuff filled with wind. He said, until I I met Christ, I thought of people that way. Did they keep the right rules? Did they do the right things? Did they achieve enough? Did they climb high enough? Enough, enough, enough? Did they help me climb? What did they offer me? He said, but since being hemmed in by the cross and the empty tomb, I no longer see people like that. Michael Mays, who's a balcony sitter, high up there in the balcony. Michael Mays recently gave me a beautiful book titled A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War by Joseph LeConte. It's a book about the friendship between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, two of my favorite writers. It was about their common experience during World War I and following. Before World War I, the world was full of optimism. We are climbing Jacob's ladder, and we're doing it all on our own. We're marching to Zion, and we have the blueprints in our pocket. When we get there, we'll build it to our own specifications. We have freed ourselves from the shackle of this pesky God, and we're building heaven on earth, and we're doing it our own way, and we're making it, by golly, we're making it. That was the prevailing myth of the world. We're getting it figured out, and we're doing it without any help. And then the machines rolled over Europe, and we filled trenches with young men. And the myth of progress took a black eye And people came out of the trenches trying to answer those questions. 
Tolkien and Lewis both diagnosed the essential nature of our problem in that we were doing it all on our own with swagger and with arrogance. And this idea of viewing one another according to the flesh, it was part of their diagnosis. In fact, years later when Lewis would write about witches and evil and darkness, he said this, witches are not interested in things or people unless they can use them. Nobody wants to be used. None of us want to be stuff. And one of the important ways we diagnose the problem that we're in is that we look at each other as stuff. And we act like witches. And out of those trenches, they came searching for better answers. And they found those answers in the old, old story of the sacred Savior of the sinner. The love of Christ moves us on. And the love of Christ moves us on by giving us a better vision. Next, if you're scribbling it down. The love of Christ moves us to speak. Verses 17 to 21 are really about the word that God gives us. The word of the gospel, the word of grace, the word of life. But so often we try to peddle a different kind of word We try to speak a different kind of message. We speak a a word after the flesh. We offer people a merely human God, a God created in our own image, a God that allows us to look cool at every party we go to. Years ago, uh, a, a guy came to me, he was a young man, and he'd gotten himself in a lot of trouble he had burned up a lot of life, and his most recently challenge was that he'd just gotten out of jail for making a big batch of bathtub speed, you know. He was not a nice guy, tough guy, uh, but I knew his grandma, and he loved his grandma. I mean, this guy was tough as nails, but he was just a, kind of a, a shaking, crying kid around his grandmother. He loved her, and he was scared of her. And he'd do almost anything grandma said. And grandma said, go see the pastor. And so he went to see the pastor. And so we sat down in my office in Pearl, Mississippi, and he told me his whole story. And, and throughout the story, he kept talking about the good Lord, the good Lord. He said, I've always believed in the good Lord. I said, well, explain to me the good Lord. Tell me about that. And he described a God that he had related himself to that had no more resemblance to the father of Jesus of Nazareth, than Zeus. It was a God that was sort of homegrown and made up, although it had many, many characteristics found in many, many other systems of thought. The good Lord. And that was our starting point. So many times we peddle a God that has nothing to do with the man of Calvary and that first Easter morning. We share our own word. We lean into our own message. Why do we do it? We do it because we want to be at home in the world. We do it because those who look on the world and, 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 and interpret the world through that lens of, of humanity will think we're, we're fitting in. 
We do it because the prevailing myths of the day, whatever they are, are loud and they're shiny and they're compelling and people are marching behind that drum. Even if it's into war, world war. We want to fit into that. Years ago, Elton Trueblood, one of my favorite writers, addressed this impulse. He said, there are writers who are so eager to reach the minds of their cultural despisers that they water down the Christian faith in order to make it palatable. He said, this is called adjustment, but it runs the risk of surrender, and then nothing is accomplished. If the Christian thinker, in his admirable effort to be understood by those outside the faith, ends up by saying essentially what the enemies of Christ are already saying, nothing is accomplished. This is what occurs when we give up the incarnation or the uniqueness of Christ or the authority of Scripture or the objective efficacy of prayer. We are doing the positive any good, none at all, if we accept merely his position and join his camp while still claiming somehow to be in the church. Any theology which is not a direct challenge to the assumptions of the philosophical naturalist is not worth elucidating. He took a hammer and he hit the nail as hard as he could. And he's right. He's right. Paul said the gospel gives us new eyes and new resources and a new understanding. And when we try to preach the message that's already prevailing in our time, but we wear Sunday clothes while we do it, and we continue to have the potlucks as we do it, then we become what Garrison Keillor calls the church of the covered dish. And there is no life in the church of the covered dish. There's only casseroles and all the stuff that's out there. But God gives us the mysteries of hope. God gives us his message, his life, his word. And as he moves us, as he pushes us out, as he urges us on, as we're constrained by his love, as we see with the eyes uh, that he gives us, new eyes, then we're bound to proclaim his fresh word, the only unique thing that's ever been experienced in this earth. And to commit ourselves to it again and again and again and again. The gospel doesn't need us to fix it. The gospel is hope, and the gospel is life, and God has called us to proclaim it. Now, just as a reminder, let me remind you quickly of the basic elements of this word found in this text we've read today. First is a sense of sacredness. Life is sacred because of God. Every person you meet was created in the image of God. Every person you meet is a person for whom Christ died. Years ago, I had a theology professor. I disagreed with him on, a, on, a, on countless things. But I'll never forget one, one lecture. It was a lecture he gave on, on the Imago Dei, being created in the image of God. He said once as a young man, he was a, an intern in a church, and there was this old sort of jaded pastor, and, and he was showing him the ropes of ministry. And this old man said to him, he said, now we're going to go make some junk visits. He said, what's a junk visit? He said, we're going to go see some people now that 
hadn't been here in a long time or they're homebound and they can't do much for us anymore. They can't teach anymore. They can't volunteer anymore. They can't give anymore. We need to make the visits, but they're kind of junk visits. He said, as a young man, his heart was broken. And his passion was inflamed. Because he knew the scriptures. There are no junk people. None. The gospel we have on this desk and before us and unleashed in the earth begins with a sense of sacredness that God made us and that we're made in his image, that we're made for his purpose and his pleasure. This is part of the word we proclaim. The second part is a sense of sinfulness. Something has gone wrong in this earth. The thing that's gone wrong is that we looked at our, our bountiful creator and, and we went our own way. We've done our own thing. We wanted to be the gods of our own life. After thousands of years, this, this place is just shot to pieces because of our own sinfulness and our own brokenness. Now, sin's not really an a, a exciting thing to talk about. It may sound like an anachronistic kind of deal. But I sat in a university campus this week and I heard one of the leading public intellectuals in this country talk about sin. And he talked about how the fact that when he goes all over the country, speaking at corporate gatherings with David Brooks, he says, I talk about sin. And he said, and all these business people, they get quiet and they lean forward and they listen. Because in our hearts, there is this longing for something more. And there's this feeling that there's something not right. And that something not right is that we, we're sinners. That's part of the word. That's, that's the bad news that precedes the good news. But the good news follows. And if you need another word, there'll be four in all. If you need another word, there's the word Savior and salvation. That into our brokenness the Savior came. And all the language that we look in these, in these paragraphs, talk about reconciliation, that's a, that's a personal word. That, that, the, the ones that are estranged come back home. He said, in Christ, we're reconciled to God. In Christ, we're made righteous. Our sins are forgiven. He said, I, I don't want to feel guilty. We are guilty. And the best way to deal with that is to deal with it objectively and to bring our guilt before a God who loves us and cares and who in the depths of his grace has demonstrated that. And then God works to free us of the shame that binds us. The language of righteousness, the language of new creation, this is our future breaking into the present that God does something to make us whole and make us alive. This is the liberating word that we preach that into our sinfulness a Savior has come to offer us life and to offer it freely and without reservation to anyone that would, would come and receive his gift. This is the word we preach. And the last word, if you're jotting them down, is, is sent. Is sent. Those of us who receive this message from God, this gracious message, we're sent to share and to share freely. To proclaim the reason for the hope that's in us. And as we respond to that, we move forward. And moving forward is called life. It's called living. 
So friends, today, on this Sunday of spring break, it's a time for renovation of the heart, renewal, and refreshment. We can be refreshed by this ancient call of God to be moved by the love of Christ, to be constrained by it. This call to see people differently because of it and to speak the words of truth in relation to it. So my question, friends, is why do you show up here? Why do you worship? Why do you come? Why week after week do you do it? Is it because you're constrained by the love of God and you're drawn back? If that's the case, then your final act of worship is not in this room. But it's as you re-enter, as you hit your car and drive down the street. And it's as you live, as you go, as you move, as you have your being in God. If you want to move from where you are to where God would have you, you're not going to get there without being constrained by his love and urged forward in ministry. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for being who you are and for doing what you do. God, we thank you that you are the creator, that you made us. And because of that, there's a sense of, of transcendence and sacredness to every person. Lord, give us eyes to see the way you see. God, we thank you that you, you love us and that you urge us on to love others in your name, to live for you. God, we pray that you would kindle us afresh in this direction today for your glory, for our good, and for the good of others. We pray in Christ's name, amen and amen. Friends, let's stand and let's sing together this song of commitment. David, would you please lead us?